Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. Richard Daines, who is the Commissioner of Health for, the, for New York State. He was appointed to that position in March of 2007 and has served in that, that position since then. As Commissioner of Health in New York State, Dr. Daines leads one of the nation's leading public health agencies with a budget of over $50 million and covering a number of topics. Prior to this, he was a practicing physician. He was president and CEO of St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center in New York City, and he's held a number of other influential positions. Thank you for joining us. Oh, great to be here. So we're going to talk today about sugar-sweetened beverage taxes, and I have to list you as one of the pioneers in, in addressing this issue. New York State, with you as the main champion for the cause, uh, brought up the issue of a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages. So we can get into the nuts and bolts of the history of what, I mean, what, what all happened with that as it played out, but what's the history? When did it first come up, and how was it introduced? Well, what we've done, we've introduced this in the state budget process two years in a row. In 2009, the state faced a large deficit, and relatively briefly, uh, the governor's budget proposed a, a sales tax on sugar-sweetened beverages. That didn't last long in the budget process that year. Part of it is because a lot of the budget problem got got covered over with federal stimulus money, and the politics didn't support it, and it was pulled out pretty quickly. Um, over the course of the year, as finances didn't recover, the 2010-11 budget gap was going to be seven, eight, nine billion dollars again, uh, and and we foresaw the end of the stimulus money. And, and by November, December 2009, as we were trying to put a budget together, you, we just couldn't make it balance, we thought, in a responsible way without additional revenue. And so that's when we brought up the uh, sugar-sweetened beverage tax again. This time, we we designed it as an excise tax on the syrup. It would produce a one cent per ounce increase in the in the price of the beverages. Bring in in the in the partial year it would be enacted about five hundred million dollars, and then in a full year a billion dollars. And we were able to in the budget show that we would put that right back into health care services, so they wouldn't have to take the cut. And I kept going around the state saying it's a triple play. It'll it'll reduce obesity. It'll reduce health care costs, it'll bring in revenue that'll, that'll close this budget problem. So it was interesting that, as if I understand correctly, the impetus for you proposing this as the health commissioner would be to reduce obesity, reduce health care costs, and have a positive impact on public health. But the legislators' appeal, the appeal of this to legislators was just a revenue-generating enterprise. I mean, that's probably how you get things done in politics, is is you you combine different interests. So you've got an interest in, in reducing obesity. You, we hoped the business community would be interested in reducing health care insurance costs, and certainly the executive and legislative branches of government needed the revenue. And we thought we could bring people together on it. So when you talked about the triple play, part of that, making the triple play successful, is having a tax high enough to reduce consumption. So then you have a health care benefit from it. And you use the revenue poured back into health care in some way. 
Um, how did the legislature talk about actually using the revenue? Because there's concern as people have proposed these taxes around the country of the revenue just disappearing for general causes and not having anything to do with health. Well, it, it, the way we did the budget this year, I could I could very accurately say it went into health care. I actually saved a spreadsheet of, of, of what we were spending across the health care budget that that predated the obesity, the sugar sweetened beverage tax. And the and the day my chief of staff walked in and said they're going to do the beverage tax uh, five hundred million dollars, I actually penciled in on that our first pass of where we would reinvest the money hospital nursing home public health and i would sometimes brandish that spreadsheet to say look i i can't make any guarantees what future executives and legislators will do but this year here's where the money went all right so let's scroll fast forward and get to the point where What's the, what's the end of the story? Where do things stand now? And then I'd like to go and fill in. Well, between. well, the end of the story is the budget was was proposed in January. It's supposed to be done in New York by the first of April. The, they were never able to come together on a budget in April, May, June, July, and it was finally settled by the governor exerting an authority he has, sort of a take it or leave it, it's called an extender. If you don't do what I say, the government closes down. And he did a series of extenders forcing the legislature to adopt certain things. At the end of the day, the end of the Ju- July, beginning in August, he was not able to put the sugared beverage tax in an extender. Uh, they substituted a tax on low-priced clothing, some other revenues, some gambling money, uh, an ugly budget solution. But the governor did the right thing. A policy this important shouldn't be done by sort of legislative trickery, ledger domain. It, it ought I. I really think it ought to be openly debated, openly adopted. So we had a six or seven month run where many times we were the center of action. We were featured in the legislative correspondence show where they sang about us and the blogs. And we had a lot of activity. And I think we moved the argument along. We prepared the ground. In the end, we didn't get the tax. All right, so let's talk about what happened in between. How was the industry successful in fighting off the tax? The the industry was successful. For one thing, they can simply outspend us. They spent at least $13 million directly uh, uh, advertising, showing housewives filling their grocery charts, start, charts with uh, big drinks of soda, storekeepers saying they'd go out of business, those kind of things. Uh, they were able to marshal that kind of uh, activity against us. But mostly what was created was a situation where the legislature really didn't want to consider it. It was too tough to consider. They were worried about their electoral chances. And the the industry let them know that, I think, is what really happened. So how, when the, you've mentioned some data from public opinion polls, and they change a lot depending on how the issue is framed. Maybe you could say something yeah, that, about that. Yeah, that was interesting in, in, in that it, when we first proposed the sugared beverage tax, the, the people opposed to it immediately wanted to label it as a fat tax. And unfortunately, some of the, some of the press picked up on that, and it got called a fat tax. So the, the first round of polling more or less said, what do you think of a fat tax, uh, one, one cent per ounce? When you pull that, you struggle to get 40% of people that support it. I'll, I'll give some rough estimates. You maybe get 40% of people that'll consider 
consider it. When you do more refined questioning and say, what do you think of a tax on sugared beverages to reduce obesity? 50% of people say, well, that might be a good idea. When you say a tax on sugared beverages to reduce obesity and the revenue will be invested to prevent health care cuts, now you can get 60%. And if you go maybe to New York City, you can get 70% of people. So the, the long-form questioning worked to our advantage, and our opponents continued to just make sure it was a kind of a binary fat tax or not fat tax. And in today's media, the, the sort of the shorter the soundbite or Twitter, the more effective it is. And I think we, we kind of lost that battle of getting the long form. I, I loved, there was one other polling question that I loved because at the same time they would poll and they'd say, in, in order to close this year's budget gap, do you think or want the legislature to do business as usual or think outside of the box? And 80% of people would say they'll just do business as usual. 10% would say they'll have the guts to think outside the box. And we'd say, we've got an outside the box, not business as usual proposal here, but we never were able to connect that. We were just the fat tax. Oh, so interesting, because if you could get with the long form of the way this is framed, as much as 60 or 70%, you'd think the, the politicians would be in favor of it because their constituency would be. But I think what you're saying is that the industry was successful at capturing the way the message was framed by using the term fat tax and having these short sound bites. That and really I think, what... Kelly, the, 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 way to, the, the strategy, I'll say next time or the next place for this, then is to, is to try to develop the, the polling base when you don't have a proposal out because will will the will the beverage interests fight this everywhere somebody decides to do a poll about public attitudes i think they'll have a hard time doing that and so we would have been better off if we had developed this set of this this polling data set with our questions long form before anybody put the tax back on the table. So we would more say, look, we've discovered that pub the public wants this, so we've proposed it. We, because of the timing, had the reverse. We were having to say, we propose this, now we've got to make the public like it. Okay. And so we, we should reverse that. What about the argument that industry often makes, that the soda industry in this case, that we're only selling a fraction of the calories that people consume, and why are you picking on us? Well, and, and there, there's a very strong evidence base about the unique role of the sugared beverages. The, the temporal trend in consumption over the 30 years of the, of the obesity epidemic, if you look at, at subpopulations, the more soda, the more obesity. There have been some actual clinical trials that demonstrate it. And then, then there's, a, there's a really unique nature to the sugar, sugar water beverages is because of various subsidies and various things, they are dramatically underpriced. The servings have grown larger and larger and larger. They're made available everywhere in the world all of the time. They're brilliantly marketed by the most talented advertising geniuses in the world. And they have a final unique factor in that they don't fill you up. They don't displace other calories. So the, the sugar water calories are more or less additive to everything else that people eat and drink. 
other food doesn't work that way. The, you know, when, when your mother told you that the cookies would spoil your supper, she was right. If you ate the cookies, you didn't eat so much supper. You drink the, the Coke before dinner and you eat just as much dinner and then you have a Coke with dinner at the same time. They just physiologically have a different effect on satiety and intake behavior. And there's been, again, some really quite elegant trials that demonstrate that. One thing that you mentioned was that uh, it sounded like a, the majority of the state's newspapers supported you on this this issue. Is that correct? Yes, and, that you know. Well, of course, there's probably hundreds of papers, but if you look at the big city papers, we had we virtually swept the board, and that it was an interesting thing because I went to editorial boards all over the state, put thousands of miles on the car, and the Buffalo News that Warren Buffett owns supported us. The the Rochester paper supported us. The Syracuse Post Standard, people told me, look, the, they have a big beverage interest, uh, bo- bottling company there. They're never going to do it. I drove out. I talked to the editors. They editorialized in favor of us. The Times Union in Albany, which is the critical paper in the state capitol, supported us. The New York Times multiple times returned to this being a good idea. I think I was probably most proud of Crane's New York business, very business oriented, spent an hour and a half with them. They came out on our side and their editorial started something like, no, no one likes taxes, but this particular one is a good idea. I didn't get the, I, the Daily News didn't editorialize, but they gave us great coverage and every bit as supportive as if they've ed- editorialized. And the, we didn't get the New York Post. Uh, they said they're allergic to taxes. And I took that, that, that is their philosophy and you can't change it. And Newsday out on Long Island just missed the issue. I don't know what they were thinking out. They, they didn't, we couldn't get them to talk to us. All right. So given that that was a real victory, how important did that turn out to be to have well, the support of the traditional media? Well, if it's discouraging that we didn't get our tax, I wonder how the editors and publishers of all of those papers feel when they can almost unanimously, strongly favor a good public policy and and it hardly shows any ability to budge legislators or public opinion at all. Uh, the, the media, news media, as everyone knows, is in a kind of a crisis and remaking phase. And maybe we were seeing part of that. I, it, it's a little frightening. Who, who's listening to those people if, if, if they can't sway public opinion? So do you think other forms of media will be like, like the social media, Facebook, et cetera, the blogosphere, and things will be very important. In these I think the that, and, and we hear that more and more for younger people, that's where they get their information. I mean, if we could have broken through to the John Stewart type show or or Colbert or something, that probably would have been more important than having every editorial board in the state on our side. Uh, the uh, Facebook, we were, we were looking at it. Boston ran a, a, an anti-sugar beverage campaign over the summer, and we looked at their Facebook page, and they had, I don't know, 5,000 followers or whatever you call them there. I just said, for fun, let's look at a Pepsi site, and one of the Pepsi sites had 1.2 million. So, opinions, impressions are being formed kind of subliminally to those of us who thought, well, if you read three or four papers and and the nightly news and that, you know what opinion is. Probably people are getting their information a completely different way now. So I'd like to end with asking you the following question. Since you were the one of the pioneers, if not the pioneer, with getting this actually out there before the government, I think New York State did it before any other state in any city, how do you feel now that this has played out and how do you, because it didn't end up being successful, 
do you see this as as a loss? Do you feel that this is progress toward an, an eventual victory? How do you feel about it? Well, we, we certainly lost in the instance. I, I think it's an issue whose time will come. Uh, we learned we learned a lot, and and the other thing I'm pretty proud of is I think we not only moved the discussion, we brought the discussion first and foremost. But if you look at the beverage industry now, I think they are worried their bubble's going to burst. If you look at what they're doing, they're desperately saying we got it out of the schools. We'll change our labeling. We'll be more careful about marketing to children. We're developing new products that don't carry the calories. We'll do all sorts of socially good things and give money away for public purposes. They're running as fast as they can, I think, in a retreating direction, but not really wanting to say it's a retreat. But they're making an enormous number of concessions to avoid the one concession that we want them to make is to correct the underpricing. I think they don't want to do that because it cuts at their core identity. If we can force the sugary beverage to be smaller or more expensive, every time somebody reaches for a bottle or a can, they're going to get a signal there's something different and not so good about this. And they can't advertise their way around that because we've built that characteristic into their product. And it appears to me they'll do almost anything to avoid that. They'll do anything we ask. They just don't want that indelible stamp. There's something bad about this on their product. So the the tobacco industry was notorious for doing public service related things, funding the symphony, the opera, tennis tournaments, etc., um, and making self-regulatory pledges. We promise we'll do this. We're really good guys. You can trust us. Government doesn't have to be involved. And, you know, the people who have written about that have said that it was just a way of stalling or preventing altogether government intervention. Do you? And it sounds like you're kind of making the same case that that's happening here, that the the beverage industry really is threatened by this. Yeah, it's it's way. a stall. It's a kind of a camouflage. We'll 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 cloak ourselves in a, in a in a, a veil of, of 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 being a good corporate citizen if you'll just let us change in our own way at our own rate. Now there are differences too. This industry can offer alternative products that don't carry the problem. Uh, the tobacco industry really couldn't do that. It uh, I, I don't want to say that it's one and the same, but some of the challenges challenges are the same. And I do think that we all know about tobacco, that the single most effective thing we did was to drastically raise the price, which could drive people into cessation and a lot of other things. Or prevent people from starting. And prevent from starting, drive people into cessation. And again, probably the beverage industry knows that both what they've learned from tobacco, and they know their own price elasticity material much better than we do. And that's why I think that look at all the things they're willing to concede, and they won't concede this one thing because it's so very important to them. It's the, the core identity of this product is it's really cheap. You can have a really big container. You can drink as much as you want. And we're, we're attacking that core identity. So s- several questions ago, I mentioned that was going to be my, la- my last <laughs> question, but there's so much to talk about here. I'd like to follow up on one point you made. It's indisputable that tobacco taxes were the single most effective way of curbing tobacco use in the United States. Not the only thing, but the single most effective thing, and it was a tremendous public health victory. And so there there are obvious parallels with the soda now. And one unexpected finding that we alluded to just a moment ago is that the the high prices 
had the greatest impact on people who were starting, mainly the kids, who never started smoking because they were the most sensitive to prices. And then that, of course, in, incurs this tremendous, uh, I mean, this long period of years of healthcare savings because somebody never started the habit to begin with. So I don't know that there's an answer to this, but I wonder if the same phenomenon won't be true here, that if the prices of sugar-sweetened beverages go up a lot, then it may be that the, the kids who can least afford to buy them would be in the position of having their consumption affect the greatest. And that might be a tremendous benefit because these are the kids who are developing brand loyalties. They're being sold the images of the athletes and the, the music stars and things like that that last a lifetime. And I wonder if that can't be prevented. Well, and, and actually there's one, one paper we, we could show you that actually says that the, the biggest impact will be on low-income children. But again, stop and think. You know, kids typically, you know, mom gives them $5. These are your snacks for the week. If some if price goes up 20%, they'll consume 20% less. And it it again, it's kind of it's kind of obvious that low-income people are more price sensitive than high-income people. And and so we have every confidence the big effect would be young people and low income. And our opponents turned that into saying, well, this is an awful regressive tax. And we would love to say, no, no, obesity is a regressive illness. We see far more in these low income communities because we're sending the wrong price signal. And it was one of these interesting things that they would try to turn around and say, you're punishing poor people. And we'd say, no, they're price sensitive. We've tricked them with prices. We're going to correct the price. Okay. Well, from my point of view, as an observer of this, I give you tremendous credit for what you accomplished. And if you consider now that there are more than, you know, 17 to 20 states and cities around the country that are very seriously considering such taxes, even unlikely places like Mississippi and Kansas, major states like California, major cities like Philadelphia, you really got something important started. And no matter what happens in New York, there is this wonderful stimulation effect that you you and your colleagues have produced around the country. But also, this could come around again in New York. So congratulations for all you've done. Thanks a lot. Thanks for your help on it. Good. It's been very nice to have you here. Our guest today was Dr. Richard Daines, a physician and commissioner of health for the state of New York and one of the pioneers in uh, proposing a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages. Please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of the other podcast visitors that we've had here, terrific people, and a variety of additional resources, including a free email newsletter that goes out monthly on food and food policy issues. Thank you.